0: Hey everyone and welcome to hashtag JungianBitsInformation podcast my name is Nicholas Toko and I am the host and author of hashtag JungianBitsInformation a blog dedicated to exploring the unconscious in the workplace specifically the dynamics between the individual psyche and the workplace I'm a freelance organizational effectiveness consultant and a training Jungian analyst at the international school of analytical psychology, also known as ISAP, based here in Zurich, Switzerland. Joining me today is Dario Nardi, PhD. He is an international author, researcher, and speaker in neuroscience, personality, education, games, AI, and body-mind practices. He taught at UCLA for 17 years and won their Teacher of the Year award in 2011. People know Dario for neuroscience of personality, Eight Keys to Self-Leadership, Jung on Yoga and other books. I'm very excited and hugely honored to have Daria on my podcast today. Today we'll be exploring the unconscious in the workplace and I'm really looking forward to our discussions. Welcome Daria and how are you today?
1: Uh, Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, a very typical fall day here in Oslo, Norway and this um, maybe 55 Fahrenheit with rain occasionally, and peaks also of sun. And uh, I'm a really tropical person, so uh, it, maybe this would not be my favorite weather, but I'm enjoying yeah. it a lot.
0: <laughs> Great, that's good to hear. I just moved to Zurich myself, so I'm based here. Uh, the weather here is still pretty warm, actually. And in fact, there the are very few signs of autumn, uh, which is my favorite time of the year. I just love the, the colors and uh, out here in, in the forest in, in Zurich. Um, as I said, I just moved here a couple of months ago, uh, having commuted to Zurich uh, and London, between here and Zurich for analysis and training for the last four years. Um, glad to be here. It's a less hectic city compared to London. Pretty much subdued. Um, but something that's really interesting this week is the Zurich Film Festival's begun and James Bond, No Time To Die, starts it premieres today. So I'm looking forward to watching it this week. So great, we're going to explore the unconscious in the workplace, uh, specifically how it manifests in the workplace, uh, its dynamics, how the individual unconscious psyche and personality interact with the workplace environment. Um, And I'm also interested in in your view about the impact on organizational effectiveness and bottom line results. Personally, I see this as an uncharted area. You might disagree or agree with me, uh, i.e. the unconscious and the workplace. Um, And I say that because perhaps we're, you know, we're really familiar with personality tests and questionnaires and some of which, like the MBTI, right, um, explores the unconscious or the the inferior function and its relations with other individuals. We share an interesting dynamic, uh, an opposing or collaborative dynamic uh, between our personality types. So using the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, also known as MBTI, I have a preference for ESFP, so that's extroversion, extroverted sensing, introverted feeling, perceiving. And I understand your preferences are INTJ, is that right? Yes. Okay. And is that, so it's introversion, intuition, thinking and judging. Is the N extroverted or introverted view?
1: So that would be introverted intuiting. Okay. And it would be extroverted thinking. And extroverted thinking, right, okay.
0: So in a world where you and I are less, psychologically aware, I guess, we may attract or load each other, depending on our level of psychological maturity, what do you, what do you see as the main differences between our personnel types, i.e. ESFP and INTJ?
1: Uh, well, one thing I'd want to say is, despite there being all four letters as opposite, that we do have some things in common, too, uh, which I'll mention. Um, The main difference is the sensing versus intuiting, uh, especially for adults. So one is extroverted sensing, the other is introverted intuiting, and my type can get super abstract, thinking long-term, neglecting practical stuff. Uh, I I will want to consider practical stuff in a mental way, but the actual day-to-day, do I have enough materials? Are the utilities paid? Uh, those kinds of things. I, I know they're important, but I really prefer to not deal with them. <laughs> um, uh, I, you know, my, my type can also be somewhat serious as well, that introverted intuiting has that connection and comfort with the unconscious in a sort of mm. serious way. Um, ESFP, in contrast, uh, is really quite concrete. It can be uh, very hands-on, let's try it and see what happens is that extroverted sensing engaging the world tactically and making choices as challenges come up Uh, could also be, from the INTJ's point of view, very short term sort of neglecting the bigger picture and uh, similarly the ESFP may feel the INTJ is like why are you not playing ball with me? (laughs) Yes,
0: absolutely. Now I I totally get that. I, I, I always say to people that I feel very much in the here and now, I very rarely think about the future and I very rarely think about the past. I'm pretty much here and now what needs to be done right at this moment and I have a I think quite a strong sort of aptitude for just gathering data and through my senses I mean I can I can I can soak up so much information but not necessarily go into the depths about any of it but I'll know a lot of information about stuff if that makes sense. But, um, yeah, definitely for me, my, my intuition has never been... Well, actually, I guess until I got to my mid-thirties, I never really I never really valued intuition. It was very much an inferior function for me. I felt uncomfortable. I felt irritated whenever it was kind of engaged. By that, I mean just having to think about the future in any way just was uncomfortable for me. I just, I just didn't enjoy it. Um, and hunches as well would mostly become... Um, I guess scary in a way, almost like, uh, mm. um, yeah. I just saw it as some sort of weird, sort of mental faculty. If that makes sense, I just, I just did appreciate it. So yeah, I can, I can, I can, I can, I can see myself in in the way you described it, intuition.
1: Yeah, there, and there's um, some, fortunately, some similarities as well that the both of our types are pragmatic uh, about things, and uh, you know, there's like some how can I say like sub-theories of type? and One of them is that we share what's called the gamma quadra. So we focus on the task and the individual in a pragmatic way. Although mm-hmm. we do so in almost opposite ways, but we're still like, how can I do this task? Mm-hmm. It's just how we go about doing it's very different. Uh, and both types tend to give each other, let's say, like territory mm-hmm. uh, to do their thing. Okay. And that's, uh, you know, for, for the most part, it's not like, let's say, ESFP is not like ESFJ, which their territory includes me most of the time. Yeah. My needs and, and what's going on with me and uh, all of that. So ESFP is more, and INTJ sort of respect each other's space, generally yeah. speaking. And um, as we get older, the thinking feeling dimension you know, draws closer and closer. So that we show those in similar ways in terms of the introverted feeling and the personal inner values. And then the extroverted thinking is that the outward practical effectiveness. Mm-hmm. And and so there's, uh, you know, what would be completely almost unbridgeable at age 15, if we knew each other in high school, <laughs> okay. versus, uh, you know, age 45, then the really... You know, development, and that's a beautiful thing about the Myers Briggs framework, as it is about development in the unconscious, yeah. and says that yes, we can grow closer together in different ways.
0: Yeah, that's this. I just want to pick on two points you said there. One is about if you and I had met when we were teenagers, you know, fifteen or so. I think if I'd met you then, my view of you would have been I can't read you, so I, I would avoid you because I just could not read you because my senses will be. Constantly trying to put some concrete reality on you, but I can sense now as I got older, that I can't do that with <laughs> intuitive types, right? So that would be one thing that would, I guess, make me avoid you in, in some sort of way. Um, I think the other thing you said as well is yes, the, the feeling, so introverted feeling for me. I, I definitely give people space. I'm very respectful of people's space and I, I always try and cultivate that sort of environment around me. Even training as an analyst here, it's full of different, different characters and personalities, but I'm very passionate about letting everyone have their space and 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 to say what they want to say without judgment. Right? Uh, I'm very open to what they have to say, and I don't put any judgment uh, towards that. I think that might lend itself to what you're trying to describe. Yes. Yeah, as... yeah. Excellent. Excellent. And so the inferior function is something that, as I said, I I came to terms with uh, in my mid 30s. What sort of effect do you think it has in the workplace? How how do how does the inferior function wreak havoc, or even uh, actually bring success, bring effectiveness into the workplace?
1: Yeah, so it, it can do either of those, depending on on how we face it. Carl Jung, uh, in his book Psychological Types, he only spends one chapter talking about types. He spends another ten chapters, more or less, on um, un- related topics, and really the root of all of it was one sidedness, Mm -hmm. the problem of one sidedness. And that's really the inability to flex because we have natural preferences. you know, I'm right handed, someone else is going to be left handed. But if I could only use my right hand, then that would really be uh, a big limitation. On the other hand, having a preference can be very useful. It's quick. It lets me know sort of what to lead first with. and, and in terms of flexing, because we're talking about psychology, in order to flex, people need awareness. Mm. You know, oh, I have this other hand. I wasn't even aware that I was using it. You know, it just sort of happens or doesn't automatically. Um, so, learning about how we operate uh, and how others operate. And all of when I say operate, that includes a behavior, but also values, biases, and mental processes. Um, and so when, when we lack awareness and we get one-sided in the workplace, Jung said, we tend to project that, quote, yeah. into the political sphere. And he meant that both literally in terms of politics uh, and also, you know, there's office politics as a, as a topic too. Um, so that's interpersonal dynamics. Uh, and, and people may like each other. For example, they, you know, they hit it. or They don't know well each other well, but they like each other, and that sounds great. But actually, that's also missing awareness, mm-hmm. and so there's not actually a respect that's established uh, because of shared knowledge and experiences together. Is there really shared trust, or is it just a set of assumptions mm-hmm. that this other person is going to behave this way? Um, is there actually real care that's there? And this is for people who like each other, not to mention people who don't.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, so people can mistake liking for trust or can mistake the role that they're playing uh, for this is how the person is going to do it or how I'm going to do it. So it really, we're talking about assumptions. Yeah. Um, and so type is a way to remind us not to just of our preferences and other people's preferences, but the non-preferences. What is the hidden piece that maybe we shouldn't assume the person is going to be doing things the way we would? Um, and and what is the, the area that sort of bothers them? Because yeah. we, we may hide that fairly well, you know, most of the time. Oftentimes, people take roles in the workplace that match their skills and interests. So they can offload it onto somebody else. Um, and then, of course, when we're one sided, we can get rigid. And that means we're not open to learning. And I don't just mean classroom learning. I'm talking about skills, about other people, about uh, even saying we're working on this project, what is a way we can innovate and do it creatively? Mm-hmm. So a lot of the, the deep biases we have, or even some of the shallow ones, you know, that's, all of us have those, but are they taking over? And are they leaving us like we only have one arm?
0: Yeah. So the inferior function, although problematic, has sort of two sort of facets. One, it could be projected negatively and could be projected positively. So in some of the people that you like, you might just see your inferior function in them consciously, unconsciously. But that could manifest itself as a as a like towards that person. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so I going back to the teenage example, you know, I was not the one I wasn't uh, very social at all. I was not good in sports. Um, and I actually, unlike some other people of my type that I've met, I had no disdain. Uh, I thought, oh, that's great. Like, I wish, and, and I have family members who are sensing preference who are good at sports. I wish I was good at sports, good for them. Like, that's uh, it shows like a talent, and actually, the teamwork that's required in team sports really requires a lot of tactical intelligence and, and mm. discipline and focus. Um, and not being social you know so i had respect uh for people who were different in that way but i also didn't know how to bridge the gap yeah and i also just sort of assumed well they're probably good at many of the things i'm good at but it turned out of course no no yeah. like i have my own gifts
0: yeah yeah, yeah that's a really interesting yeah. point so my, my family originally from uh, uganda in east africa and I've, I've always considered uganda quite an introverted culture because uh, for me as a child I grew up in the States. So I was born in Uganda uh, We moved to the States when I was very young about one or two grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and The US I think is quite an extroverted sensing culture. I absolutely loved it and I still to this day remember everything the weather in Pittsburgh, the, the snow, the, the Pittsburgh Steelers, the, the yellow bus that took me to school. I mean, my senses just came alive. But I was always struck that whenever I went home there was a certain silence in the house where my mum and dad and my sisters would just sort of always be in a reflective mode every evening, you know, going to bed early and I just wanted to, you know, just talk and to, to do stuff, right? So for me, my family, I think it's, I had to grapple with introversion and. Yeah, it was very challenging because i felt very very different you know i felt completely different to the rest of my family who are predominantly uh, introverted to this day um they find my trips to the mountains and biking and running just you know especially at my age you know why are you still doing it but they don't realize it's such a such a core cool part of me um what were your experiences growing up in the states because the states is quite a extroverted sense in culture right did you
1: yeah, is, uh, so is interesting, so I lived for three years in the Caribbean in Barbados, which, mm-hmm. if I had to put a type on the culture, would be an ESFP culture. Mm-hmm. So it's quite uh, flowing and feeling-oriented and outgoing, and uh, Bayesians, people who live in Barbados, consider Americans largely to be crazy. Um, <laughs> and I don't mean crazy in a fun way. Um, and then later on, still as a teenager though, uh, I lived and went to school in Japan, which is pretty mm-hmm. much like the uh, an opposite, almost, of Barbados. Mm. Uh, and the very quiet and orderly and um, all of these traditions. And, and, and I also had the experience of living on the west coast of the U.S. versus the east coast. And I'm not really an east coast person. I'm, I'm not fond of the east coast at all. I do have mm. memories of it. I went to school in New York uh, and in the D.C. area. I'm much more of a West Coast person, which is more lively. Mm. And for me, what I really love about America, especially on the West Coast, is the spirit of innovation. That we're really free to do or pursue anything we want to. Yes. Yeah. And no matter, I mean, in Los Angeles, it's funny. You could say, oh, yeah, I'm doing this. And it could be like the craziest thing in the world. And people are like, oh, that's so amazing. Like, tell me more about it. And that that was really quite nice. Uh, You know, in terms of Barbados being an island's nation, there really aren't a lot of opportunities there. Mm. Uh, Although the people are very warm and open, uh, and I love the tropics. Japan is very, very uh, technological, um, especially in the cities. But it also has this other side of it that's very introverted and quiet. And I was told by several people when I was in Japan that I was, quote, more Japanese than the average Japanese person. <laughs> so, I'm like, wow, okay. Uh, so, I, I really enjoy, you know, if I had to say my favorite countries, those are two of them. Um, uh, I, I love being in Norway now, too. It's uh, Every Scandinavian, every European country is a little bit different. Um, you know, there's, uh, certainly, I was in high school in the United States. Mm -hmm. and there was a certain expectation and I just wasn't as social as the average person and that was uh, to say the least and um, that that was a little bit tough but America also creates spaces for subgroups like a lot of spaces and so being an engineering student in college uh, I fit in with the other engineering students Hmm. So you know, there's an, even in high school there was Dungeons and Dragons, and there was, you know, if you want to do that, and if you want to do hockey, there's also that, and yeah. you know, there's drama, and there's like fifty things you can do. Like Americans love all these options. Yes. And <laughs> and so I feel like every type can can find its space. Yeah. Uh, There was even a a great moment, I remember, that there were some visitors from the Japanese Education Ministry visiting my high school because it was, at the time, the number 10 high school in the United States. And, uh... Which I thought was neat, but I had no, you know, no way to, no no perspective on that otherwise. And I remember we were crossing some of the school grounds and they saw a bunch of students smoking on the back steps of, of some of the school. And the teacher's like oh i didn't know like youths were allowed to smoke in the u.s and i'm like they're not (laughs) (laughs) but the school doesn't enforce it and that that really amazed to them
2: yeah
1: and uh, my my understanding is that now uh schools in the united states are a lot more uh sort of officious and regulating moment-to-moment and day-to-day activities. But in the 70s and 80s, when I was in school, was uh, e- 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 there, there was a lot of slack.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I was just thinking, uh, when you talked about your earlier point about intuition and sensing the U.S. Yeah, I I, I, I agree with you completely that the U.S. has as a country, you know, extra intuition, extrovert sensing have been functions and att- functional attitudes that have re- really driven the country forward, right? In in a sort of pioneering sense, um, things get done, and that, that that sort of future orientation is is so prevalent in U.S. culture. Um, less so in the U. Actually, in the U.K. things are very different. I think it's the U.K. is a very introverted culture. It does have it ex- some. Ex- it does have some extent of extra intuition but i think there's a lot of introverted sensation there's a real sort of rooted in the past kind of culture where everything's looked from from the perspective of history of you know the how the uk developed that sort of things so it's a very it's a very different culture so just to summarize the inferior function is problematic um it's an area of consciousness that is difficult for a person uh, but on the other hand, the inferior function uh, remains for the most part in the unconscious. We 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 could be, we're aware of it to some extent as we get older, right? Yeah. As we as we grow older, it it can it can have enormous potential for change. Um, and I I'm quite interested to know how individuals can integrate it um, in their conscious mind. So for me, it was maturity, age. I began to reflect. On who i was and, and to notice when my inferior function was triggered so i sensed the the irritation the the slight being uncomfortable and then meeting people who had intra-intuition how how have you if you don't mind saying personally how did you come to terms with extroverted sensing what um, was there anything specific that helped you to sort of um i guess integrate your inferior function
1: yeah uh well one is that i had reference points in childhood so that I could look back and when I learned type. uh, But I think even beforehand, I had this vague sense of, oh, there's another way to live and another way to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had to uh, on on my mom's family, my stepdad and my dad's family my stepmother both have extroverted sensing. So that also gave me a reference point for for what is this? And it was something that was part of our family life, not in in huge doses. Uh, It was very nice. As I got older, and I would say it wasn't really until my 40s. I mean, over the years, I became more aware of it, uh, maybe starting in my mid to late 20s. And some of it was to relax and not take things so seriously
2: mm-hmm. another
1: was the enjoyment of activities for their own sake like playing guitar for example um not just doing exercise for health but the rush that comes with the runner's high or the high from the workout and that feels good and that's uh that's nice um and then in my 40s beginning stepping out of academia and running my own business for a while really reminded me it's like oh i do need to actually pay attention to all of the details and keep my eye on the ball yeah. and have my act together pretty much all of the time like there's uh, you know one maybe can take off a week mentally speaking but that's about <laughs> it and, and i want to say mentally speaking because extroverted sensing is a mental process just as much as any of the other processes. Absolutely, yeah. And and attending to that practical stuff. Um, And in the last few years, uh, getting involved with body-mind practices and uh, yoga, uh, even a friend of mine recently this year uh, gave me some lessons in Qigong, Mm -hmm. a martial uh, martial arts instructor. Uh, During the pandemic, when many people were hiding at home, Uh, for various reasons, good or or not. Um, uh, I was like, you know, I'm going to go to Brazil, and I'm going to go to Mexico and Costa Rica, and Mm -hmm. I was on the beach in Brazil and in Costa Rica, totaling for maybe four months. And uh, I mean, I was working during that time too, remotely, but I also just really loved it. You know, to me, a lot of it was a work-life balance. And, And when I am doing something physical there's no um, like not to put pressure on myself to turn it into a task Mm. and but you know I have to say there was one real wake-up moment, and I had learned type a year or two before and so this was when I was like 23 and uh, I had some roommates and one of them his female friend, came over and immediately I thought oh she's an ESFP and she started flirting with me and I realized like, oh wait, ESFPs just flirt for fun. <laughs> like she doesn't actually mean anything by this. I shouldn't take it seriously. I don't need to. It's simply done for fun. Yeah. And and it's like playing tennis for fun or whatever it is. I'm like, oh, that's extroverted sensing. Absolutely. And there's a part of me that's like, wait, well, shouldn't it be practical? And I'm like, but no, but it's fun.
2: Yeah.
1: And and then there's a certain uh, you know, they say in, in Scandinavia it's it's cozy, mm. and so the sensing there's an introverted sensing coziness from tradition and repetition and safety and comfort, and then there's an extroverted sensing coziness, which is like, you know, when the dog and the cat and the hamster are all comfortable to just like eat and lounge with each other, and there's no rivalry, and everybody's chill in the house, and all the animals are happy. And and that's uh, is a really nice feeling. It's like, you know, I didn't feel like a ghost in the world or a, or a robot or something like that. It's yeah. being a person.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah you have hit it on the nail there for me. <laughs> the Expert sensing. <laughs> Life is all about fun for me, and I, 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 you know, I don't even know what I'm gonna do each day. I wake up every morning. I've got a, I've got a night like, plan, obviously, because I've got to I've got to live. I've got to work. I've got to train as an analyst but often i'm having some sort of fantasy on the side about how i'm gonna have fun on that day and it would just just be something completely spontaneous um and it's funny you talked about the flirting yesterday i was at, i was at isap i just had a lecture and i was leaving and one of my fellow students was on her phone to her husband in the us and i'd spoken to her previously just "Oh, you're still in the building you know we're just having a bit of a chat and i was leaving the building she was outside talking to her husband and I didn't, I, I didn't intend to say hello, I was just going to sort of wave goodbye, but she stopped me and grabbed me and said, let will say hello to my husband. And immediately the first thing I did was say, oh, you're so handsome. I didn't, why don't your wife Tell me how handsome you are. And I launched into this complete, I mean, I could hear him going, oh my God, what the hell is going on here? But it was just my way of, you know, I enjoy that sort of, it's, it's, yeah, people think it's flirting, Aww. but it's quite an energetic way for me to engage with people where. And if feeling's attached, I'm trying to help make, you know, not make them, but I want them to feel better about the encounter uh-huh. with me. So, yeah, there is <laughs> there is a lot of flirting uh, in extroverted sensing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if it's it's not intended, it's still there. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it says I, I like to use a Bill Clinton as an example, because people said even Republicans who supposedly should really dislike him at the time, they're like, but when he walked into the room, you literally could not help but like him yeah. and enjoy your time. Yeah, and and I think that's a real testament to it's a kind of charisma. Yeah, in a way that is yeah. very nice. And the
0: other thing I've noticed so when I so with, for me, um, you know, integrating inter intuition, I found it brought some boundaries around my extroverted sensing. By that I mean, when sensing and intuition work together, which they do in a in, in very sort of short term way, but yep. it, it almost places some kind of future sort of um, Is this worth it? Sort of question. Is this fun worth it? And I I sense there's something not judging but just sort of making some sort of estimation evaluation about whether it's worth it And so I might not even turn on the flirting with particular individuals Because I just feel mm, I've just had some sort of intuitive thought um, Some sort of nudge from my unconscious so Something that's made me think now this isn't worth it I don't know if that makes sense, but I've, I've noticed yep. that with when the two functions work together, both the you know the uh, first function of sensing and then the inferior function, um, yep. Yep. it puts it put some boundaries. But let's move on to uh, the unconscious in the workplace. Uh, so this blog is all about exploring its dynamics in the workplace, and I I I, I think it's um, it's an uncharted area, specifically around the unconscious. Um, because a lot of people, it's 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 not concrete, right? It's a realm of the psyche that is unknown, it's unseen. But many people um, are aware of its manifestations. Um, dreams is an example of how the unconscious manifests. Um, fantasies and, and images. Um, and I think there's some particular individuals who, you know, they're very aware of the unconscious activity. What does the unconscious mean? For you, according to your understanding of that particular realm of the psyche, how would how would you define it?
1: Um, you know, that's a good question because I, I some of me wants to to answer that from the the neuroscience point of view, and the other part sort of wants to say from the Jungian the point of view or the psychological point of view, what what is it? Um, you know, I would say at its simplest. It's whatever is outside of our awareness, mm-hmm. and specifically, even more so, what is outside of or pushed away from our identity. And I mean identity in a very, you know, de- general human sense. I'm not talking about particular demographics or whatnot. Um, so it's the underdeveloped or unowned aspects of ourselves. Yeah. So it could actually be something that's like our our first you know, what's called the dominance function, uh, our heroic function, and there are aspects of it when it's overplayed that we may not notice about it, and that could be unconscious. Mm. And then we get feedback that, like, oh, you're way overdoing it, Um, and we're sort of shocked to hear that. So is the stuff that we... uh, It's the pets that we keep outside the house instead of bringing them in. (laughs) We're sort of aware that they're there, and we enjoy them sometimes, but... um, you know, they're, they're not the things that we want to look at, so... Mm.
0: And they are often it, people we, we, we sort of, we may not like for some reason, right? So if there's someone you meet and you just have a sort of instant dislike of an individual, that could be a potential sort of repressed part of yourself manifesting in, in, in some sort of, as you said, projection earlier um, to another individual.
1: Oh, yeah, 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 and that's, it, 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 you know, there, there is this broad statement that's like, oh, well, you know, everything you don't like in others is, you know, you talking about yourself or whatnot. Um, yeah, I don't think it's quite as simple as that. You know, we, we may not like someone because they remind us of someone else we knew from the past. When I, I took a, an acting prep class for about two years, and, and eventually an acting class, it was very difficult um, mm. in my opinion. And this was not for stage, it was for film and television. And, and what I learned, well, besides that I shouldn't be acting, because um, it's really hard, <laughs> uh, yes. is that uh, in the acting prep it's all about getting in sync with the other people. Because as an actor you don't want to act, because that comes off as fake. Mm. So it needs to be authentic behavior in imaginary circumstances and that we would do exercises and some people I would just have very quick instant rapport with and the timing and all of that would just go very, very easily. And there were other people that it would be very difficult and I became aware that I would put up a block Mm and one of them was actually the teacher because even though she's a slightly different personality type than my mother, I, she was similar age and all of that, when I rewind to being a teenager and I'm like, oh, I have stuff that I haven't processed that I don't want to think about and she reminds me of some of that and yet she's a different person so this is unfair and, and in acting, one needs to processing you know deal with all of those things otherwise you can't be in a scene with somebody properly because you're carrying real-life baggage so in terms of the impact in the workplace you know there, there are things like the undeveloped parts of myself and and you know, that's fine for us to work on those uh, over time what to me is really interesting is the, the baggage part mm-hmm. the baggage that's unconscious the behavior patterns that are unconscious which could be part of I mean, it could be any part of the personality, including our strengths, when they're overplayed. And, and so that's what it means to me. It's like there's a certain... It's like a cup, and on the inside of the cup is the ego and the self and the things that we're aware that we're good at and we like about ourselves. And and we want to, to hang on to and, and work to flourish, which can be great. Um, and then there's the stuff outside of that. And... And do we sort of push that down and try and suppress it there's a really great book uh the body keeps the score Mm -hmm. and it's about how people store uh behavior patterns and trauma throughout the whole nervous system which Mm -hmm. runs through the whole body i mean it's sort of an american conceit in particular that the brain in the head inside the skull is where we have consciousness and who we are and but in fact, most of the nervous system runs outside the bo- outside the brain through the body, mm-hmm. and and the whole system through is through the stomach
0: involved. as well, right? That the stomach is is almost like a, a oh, second yeah. brain, right?
1: Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. The stomach and the heart, and um, you know, when we we look at uh, hormones and neurotransmitters and sort of the whole system, we discover that eighty percent of the signals are running upwards from the body into the brain. Mm. And yet people are largely unconscious of those, unless they have indigestion or heart palpitations, and, and then they may even wonder, where is that coming from? Why am I feeling that way? Oh, that's not right. I should be calm. <laughs> it's like, well, no, you're angry because uh, you're seeing some injustice that is a repeat of something you've seen many times in your life, and you're not looking at it, or... um you know there there's something bothering you that's or you're in love but you don't want to think about that because mm. you're afraid of being in love um so that pitter-patter of the heart is a heart problem rather than it being a love problem mm. and or love opportunity problems and opportunities um, mm. so to me that's it's the unconscious is something like what jung said that we can engage with it's like a hidden dance partner and and how do we coax out that that hidden person and also get ourselves right so that we can engage with it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And its impact is can be debilitating, right? So there's workplace conflict between individuals and teams, um, nefarious behavior by leaders and managers who just project all their issues on the organization, and that can have an impact on you know an organization's effectiveness of profits, right? So, but I, I, I'm still trying, I'm still as part of my blog really trying to explore how we can how organizations can take the unconscious seriously and it's and it, that it can wreak havoc in the workplace um, I work with a lot of HR professionals and they have lots of policies and procedures to deal with all kinds of behaviors in the workplace but often I think that the issue is a psychological one right but there's no space to talk about the psychological issue you know that the, the complex being triggered in the workplace the very the unconscious that there there doesn't seem to be a place for that conversation instead conflict is taken down a procedural route you know to let's okay. let's let's investigate this let's mediate let's get the two people to talk but actually when i as an investigator myself look into it I think now this is a, a eruption of the unconscious which but there's no there's no route for me to talk
1: about that with the
0: organization okay. yeah
1: yeah cuz there there maybe are are let's say three different levels Uh, One of them is the kind of easy, easier uh, discussion that one can have in the workplace about like learning styles or the personality types or the traits, whatever it is. And people get a sense of like, okay, I'm a little bit different than you and so on. And that can be done as it often is in a superficial way and sometimes it can go deeper. Um, And that's one kind of difference. Uh, Another kind is, as you suggested, the eruption from the, the unconscious, that the person will say something like, I was just beside myself, mm. or that wasn't me, I don't know why I did that. And they're probably being honest about it, and, and it was some aspect of them coming out, and then usually that's re- thought of as a disciplinary issue, rather than, um, you know, something of the unconscious that, yeah. that is coming out that's unaddressed.
2: Yeah. And then
1: I would say the third thing is culture and the the, both the workplace culture, which can be sort of invisible. um, You know, every every workplace culture has its values, which means biases uh, of some things over others. And then the larger culture, you know, where the company I work with now uh, here in in Norway, um, they regularly in the maritime industry have to assist teams that could have three, four, five different nationalities. Uh, on a team um, and you you go to a ship at sea and it will have uh, mariners who are Filipino Nigerian French, American and Norwegian for example and those are all quite the different cultures and so there's the that personality differences, there's the sort of social cultural differences and then there are the individual issues and we can help people by giving them, and this is what I think something like what any good personality model is going to do is give people a language or a lens to at least see and name what's happening
2: mm-hmm.
1: for themselves and be like, oh, right, like, I, I do like closure on things, and that comes with some benefits. as also some drawbacks. And then there's this other person on our team who's indicated, you know, she really likes to keep things open and you know she happens to be the most like adaptable person on the team and thank goodness when there was that crisis a few weeks ago Um, and 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 I use that word crisis because in a lot of organizations we can go to a workshop and talk about here are some blind spots or polarities Mm -hmm. or mistakes people have made. In the maritime industry the, the mistakes can cost millions if not billions of dollars. Uh, tens of billions, potentially, um, the human lives are at stake. People die. They're maimed. Like, th- this is because of a communication issue. Is so fascinating, and this is something I really sort of discovered and, and motive not me personally, but learning about it and working here, is that most of the major industrial accidents, somebody on the job, in the factory, on the ship, knew, typically 30 minutes beforehand, that there was going to be an accident. And that person was unable to communicate, or communicated and was not heard, and that led to an accident. And those could be because of cultural differences, uh, including language barrier, but also assumptions about how you address and challenge authority. Um, They could be personality differences, uh, between two or more people. They could be individual issues. The person is personally fearful of sticking their neck out.
2: Yeah.
1: And, you know, for, for businesses that think, well, you know, we're not going to have industrial accidents. And I'm like, yeah, but you can have financial accidents. You can have tremendous personnel disengagement and turnover. Mm-hmm. Uh, the top, in any decade, the top 10 companies will within ten to twenty years no longer be in the top ten. Mm. That doesn't mean they'll disappear. Like IBM hasn't disappeared as a company, but it is definitely not in the top ten. Yeah. Just as the top ten companies today, many of them, Google, Facebook for example, will not be in the top ten in twenty thirty.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's just uh, Yeah Retsm will yeah. the
0: average the average age of a top you know, top of Forbes 100 companies. I think 70 years or something like that. There's some some companies have lasted longer. Um, yeah. I think the what's oh, that famous Jean, the jeans company uh, manufacturing in manufacturing the US has been around since the 1800s. I
1: mean, like Levi's. Levi's,
0: yeah. I mean, they've yeah. they've been around for a very long time, but they've just sort of adapted. I think with every every sort of decade. You know, the 60s, the you know 70s, 80s, 90s. They've just adapted. But the other thing I find as well is that companies, in particular public sector organizations spend all that effort, time and energy goes into trying to investigate some of the complaints and the grievances. So There's a big sort of, um, let's look into this and find out what's happened, but it just goes on for, for, for months on end. And yeah. so people's time is taken away from delivering their work, which is you know helping people, right? So there's that sort of effect as well, not just financial, but actually people's time is based on dealing with internal conflict. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, the, the, the evidence that the, the root cause of that is lack of trust. And um, because the people become mistrustful and they think, well, I, I need to go to an authority figure to solve yeah. this mm-hmm. because I can't trust the person I'm interacting with to resolve it in yeah. some way. I, I'm not saying they should trust this person. I mean, trust is something to develop. Um, and then there's all those spokes around that. So caring, respect, uh, the openness to the other person or people we're working with. Uh, for, for many years, I mean, I would say about 15 years, I led uh, small group dynamics courses. So this mm-hmm. is when people would work in groups of like five, six, seven, eight, of their fellow mostly college students and it's really fascinating to see that even when I gave them the tools to reflect and name what is going on in their group that that it really took a bit for them and, and most of them did succeed at coming together to gel as a group, mm-hmm. to emerge as a group and a lot of that seemed to be that there, there emerged a culture that came out of like a group culture that came out of shared problem solving and part of that created trust in the group that yeah you know the Joe is very talkative and Mary is really rigid about adapting to stuff and whatever it might be but they've shared enough in common and gotten through enough that they have trust and respect Mm -hmm. for each other and listen to what other people are saying and at least you don't have to agree uh, because that wasn't, it wasn't, the point of the groups was not to create groupthink. it was just to give a presentation as a group on their process in preparing to give that presentation. Um, but it, it was really interesting to see the, the, the invisible dynamics, the unconscious dynamics at yeah. play. Yeah, yeah and, and there were personality dynamics that were there. Um, there were cultural dynamics. Sometimes, because there were so many students, I would just randomly assign people and then discover there was, you know, one person who's completely different culture than the other students in that group. Yeah. And, and then the groups themselves. You know, people have innate fear, in a way, of being absorbed into a group, but then also don't want to be left out. And how do we walk that line? And there's a whole bunch of coping strategies. And those play out throughout organizations, you know, mm-hmm. pairing up, waiting for a messiah, uh, blaming, the, finding <laughs> a scapegoat to blame, uh, you know, there, there's all of these different behaviors, and, um, the good news is once they became aware of those, and I think that's what personality knowledge mm-hmm. does too, and the same for people who take, like, cultural awareness courses, so cross-cultural stuff, they're like, oh, that's what's happening.
2: Yes.
0: And, and that it creates and that brings,
1: a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. And that
0: brings um personal effectiveness. So people are much more effective in the workplace. You get better team dynamics in the organization. You know, this is the business case, right? Sell <laughs> it to an organization. Okay. Um, you get that effectiveness in the organization. You mentioned earlier creativity and innovation. I think that's a great sort of outcome from you know engaging your own unconscious, that it's a real sort of um a great sort of Repository of creativity or innovation, it kind of unleashes it. Um, and I've talked about in a previous blog about the feeling function in particular. That's one function I'm, I tried. I talked to a lot of organisations about about how the feeling function contribute co- contributes to or um, resolves workplace conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, I think certainly for me as a as introverted feeling, I know that. It will. It has its sort of own laws, right? There's certain things I feel very passionately about, and there's some things I don't really care so much about. That so it's it's highly it's discerning, and I feel I've got completely no control over it. Um, but I think certainly with workplace conflict, I've often seen when I'm when I've seen conflict in the workplace that some individuals withhold the feeling function from other individuals, whether they're conscious about it or not. Is the question I kind of explore with them, but this withholding of a feeling function is, a, is an interesting concept that I've, I've, I've talked to many organizations about and they're beginning to see that that concept which is, you know, classic Jungian, right? Um, the feeling function, its ability to harmonize with, with individuals and relatedness. So just moving on now to um, the next uh, area that I'm really keen to talk to you about, which is uh, artificial intelligence, which is making huge strides in the workplace um i recently wrote an article about the unconscious uh in the workplace and, and its manifestations i've been really surprised actually since the pandemic began particularly in london that a lot of jobs are disappearing because of ai and i think many organizations have seen it as an opportunity to really progress ai in the workplace um given your background um what's what's your view of ai and What's the future of AI in the workplace, and and how do you see it um, affecting the unconscious or personality in the workplace?
1: So there's a, a little bit of an interesting story. Some people may recall, uh, you know, the 2008 mortgage and banking crisis that happened, and that did not happen out of nowhere. Its roots mm-hmm. go back actually very, very far. Um, and its roots go back, actually, to the Exxon Valdez oil spill, uh, which was so expensive that they had to come up with new ways of financing debt in order to, to deal with the, the impact of causing so much environmental damage and having to pay for that. And those, those uh, toolbox of techniques for financing debt made its way into the mortgage sector. And around this time, also in the, the early to mid-90s, uh, folks were developing what were called expert systems, so it wasn't the machine learning that we have today. It mm. was more uh, interviewing a variety of of experts on a topic and coming up with some if-then-else kind of parameters to Say for example, yes or no to a mortgage mm. and so one of the banks uh, and I happen to know somebody who, who documented this internally uh, Washington Mutual Um, developed an AI program. It's basically an expert system that would advise every broker or or lender um, working what was the the AI's opinion of whether or not to give a mortgage. And at the beginning this worked quite well and then over time as the late 2000s came and a lot of money started pouring into the system because of the internet boom and then yeah there was a recession then and people wanted to pull out of the recession. And, they, and some, there were also some law changes. And the folks, the executives at Washington Mutual realized that they didn't like the, what the AI was saying. It was saying no too
2: often. <laughs> yeah.
1: and, and they understood that it wasn't the AI was wrong. It was that they didn't like that it was so conservative. Mm. And so they simply lobotomized certain pieces of it so that it would say yes more often. And then, uh, you know, once the the early 2000s recession was over, there was another huge wave of basically just wanting to make hundreds of billions of dollars, and Washington Mutual decided to simply discard the AI, uh, because it was again hampering their chasing after money. Mm-hmm. Uh, needless to say, the Washington Mutual no longer exists today as a bank. Um, it completely just, it vaporized. All right. Uh, you know, parts of it were bought up by other banks. Um, the executives knew very well in the, the weeks and nights before what was going to happen and why. Uh, and and it's so interesting that there was an AI that had they simply listened to it, in the way that, say, Wells Fargo did, which is a bank that weathered the the 2008 collapse very well because it maintained a conservative outlook about lending. Uh, We'll say a a non-greedy, you know, now Wells Fargo has its own issues, but back in the early 2000s, it it was a a conservative uh, bank, and, and they essentially, you know, followed along with it. So had had they kept the AI, they would probably still be around as a bank today.
2: Right, yeah.
1: And also many people who were maybe, it wasn't ideal to give them a loan. They ended up getting loans and then they lost their homes, which is a very traumatic experience. Mm. And while the bankers were bailed out, many of those people with mortgages not bailed out. And which was also very, you know, is a very difficult thing. So it's... I think some of the questions for us to remember that human beings are creating AIs, at least at yeah. this point. Yeah. And and what goes into the AIs is going to be, uh, yeah, our own biases and preferences. I mean, this has been discovered in, even in the AIs that sort of do self-training off of data. They're only as good as uh, is what you put in,
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, so if there are biases in the data that's going to be reflected in the performance of the AI. Mm. Uh, and even when the AI is well-designed and thoughtful, do do people want to hear what it has to say?
2: Yeah.
1: Or is it going to be putting up a big stop sign when there's ambition, greed, uh, caring, but that's short-sighted, uh, you know, a variety of things? And so I think some of that is up to us. And And really, when I taught an AI course, a big part of the course was thinking about as they, they put on these human robot plays and the robots could actually they had visual processing and object identification and face recognition and speech recognition and so on. And and they got to see that the for the most part, the the smart robots, which ended up looking quite smart on stage, I have to say, when they put on their plays, um, that they reflected the values of the people who programmed, who programmed
0: them. Programmed them, yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: And and so there's uh you know what what is ai i mean I, it it's changed over time but it's the attempt to replicate human abilities in mm. machines
0: so it's an attempt to uh, mimic human intelligence right and yeah. and yeah and and out outperform human capabilities is that is that a a, a motivation as well um, i but, guess mo- from a workplace perspective so any sort of repetitive yeah. task could be could be done by AI, right?
1: Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. In in theory, uh, you know, the, the mantra for a long time has been getting uh, robots, particularly, but I think any AI, including if you want to excel spreadsheet in a way, as an AI, uh, is not really doing decision making so much. Or it can be programmed. It's doing dull, dirty, and dangerous jobs, mm-hmm. and in that sense, that's great. Um, because people who worked on assembly lines for many years just putting the same part over and over again in a car or a blender or whatever it is, is that the best way to leverage a human life?
2: Yes.
1: And the answer is no. Um, and and so if we can automate that process, great. The question is, is as we're dealing now in creating what are called virtual coaches at the company I'm at. and But the virtual coaches aren't designed to replace the human coach. Right. They're there to augment the human coach, to free up the coach in order to have more personal one-on-one and more personal group team discussions, rather than having to repeat the same material with every team of four to six people, mm. hundreds of teams, with the idea that, you know, this way, <clears throat> instead of just, Only doing our team building with executives or managerial level, you know, people who want to go into leadership position, we can actually reach the entire organization vertically, all of the employees, that we can reach thousands of people if we bring in AI, and we don't even have the AI, it doesn't have to cover everything, and not everybody has to participate in the same way but if we can bring in something where everyone in the organization has a shared experience and has access to something that's interactive and intelligent Mm -hmm. that's huge and there simply aren't enough people to meet that need like that's in terms of coaches and facilitators and
0: absolutely um, so by augmenting humans you it's another way of saying that is that it frees us up to do more creative innovative stuff so that's that could be a the benefit of AI that your yes your the drudgery of your your repetitive job, um, actually frees you up to do more creative innovative things. You're not necessarily redundant, right? Uh, yeah, that your yeah, redundant.
1: absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Some people will find, and this is really true. I mean, for the past five hundred years in in Europe and and in North America, that there's just a constant process of jobs becoming obsolete. Yeah. You know, we, we, there are people alive today, in the UK, by the way, in the countryside, there's still uh, milk, like milk delivery every morning. If you want that, you can sign up for that. <laughs> yes. um, and there, there's a quaintness to it, is, and it's fresh milk and, and all of that. Um, and I think if people want to do that, it's great. If they want to sew clothing themselves rather than have it made by a machine, mm-hmm. some really remarkable stuff, uh, you know, can come out of that. And again, that's what you're saying is in any industry, does it free people up now in a service industry to say we're going to replace almost everyone we can in the restaurant with like a push button machine then it turns that people are not so excited about that because it's not just about efficiency. People also want yeah, the human touch.
0: Absolutely. Because now, because of the pandemic, right, if you go to a restaurant or a bar, you can now order your drinks and fruit from your table, right? You just scan the barcode and mm-hmm. voila. there's your... So you're already seeing that kind of um, post-pandemic <laughs> introduction of AI life, right? It yeah, is happening yeah. right now, right? Yeah, yeah. So my, yes. so my interest in AI is actually pretty much driven by a psychological question. So coming back to the unconscious, this idea of creativity and innovation uh, within being unleashed from the unconscious and, and instinct as well, right? So human instinct is, mm-hmm. is the unconscious. So if if AI um, takes over all these tasks, what, what will happen to our human instincts? Because there's a very interesting film called THX 1138 that you and I have talked about. I, I just would like to explore this idea of human instinct and AI. And actually, a question. I guess my question is, the unconscious versus AI, who would win the race? The unconscious, you have certain pros and cons and, and, and AI as well. So one of the pros of the unconscious is creativity, innovation, human instinct. What are the pros and cons of each of each one?
1: Oh. Well, you know, our our human and, and animal heritage goes back eons, and and is informed by eons of living life. And most of that time has been people living in hunter gatherer or agricultural societies, mostly hunter gatherer. Um, some people may think, oh, that's a quote very primitive way of being, but actually, uh, when we look at what it takes to survive in the natural world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even, in fact, to do basic farming. So they've looked at the the uh, bones and, and other remains of farmers from, say, the Neolithic period. The average farmer, female farmer, not to mention male farmers, was actually more fit than Olympic athletes today. Oh, really? Yes. So this idea that we're somehow, oh, this advanced you know uh, the human race and the technology and all of this, and we're so smart. Um, actually, you know the person, people who lived five thousand years ago, uh, had to be smarter than today. Yes, and, they did <laughs> in, in a way. Right, and we wouldn't be here if it weren't for them. So yeah, it, there there is that, and
0: because the danger, right? There was far more danger from just nature itself.
1: Oh yeah, um, yeah.
0: yeah. now? we're you know we've had the pandemic. That's I think that's been a test on many people's, um, particularly in the Western world, I'd guess, on their on their own instincts of survival, right?
1: I I'm really surprised in a way, and maybe it's become because I come just at the cusp of a generation that uh, you know throughout my childhood and adolescence I was somebody who played outside. And there was no sitting at, yeah, there was like Pong or whatever, but who would play a video game for hours and hours? And there was no social networking or any of those things. Mm -hmm. And there, so I remember worlds without personal computers and cell phones and all of that. And by the way, that world was perfectly entertaining uh, as well as practical. And and, uh, I, I would say that what technology has brought, fortunately, is a lot of democratization of possibilities like writing and publishing books or creating artwork or whatever it is. It's in the hands of individuals now more than ever. Um, so there, there is this room that technology can create for innovation, but is THX 1138 highlights that there's a point when we lose our humanity because mm-hmm. we're taken care of in so many ways and, and it give, the film gives some hints that there were ideological roots before the, the sort of technology takeover, that to eliminate uh, sex, marriage, gender, all of these things, you know, that were uh, I don't want to even say dividing people, but were, were inhibiting progress, as it was viewed, at some path, yeah. you know, efficiency, whatever it was, um, and you know, to just make people, like, interchangeable parts, mm. in a way. And that's not what the unconscious is about, uh, I I think that this question is addressed really beautifully in some prequels to the Dune books. So not uh, the original Dune books, but um, a little bit before, so they, they take place before that, in a world where humanity and the machines, these intelligent AIs, are at war with each other and the AIs actually give a lot of reflection to how dangerous humans actually are. And they're not they're dangerous not because they know that they're dangerous or that humans are particularly powerful, but because of their unconscious, their instincts, their innovation, their ability to be irrational and through the irrationality create outcomes that were completely unforeseen, but quite powerful. Um, and this is something I when when AI came up and I thought You know, I present to students this idea of of edge of chaos, so if we wanted machines that are truly intelligent, which Mm. means that they can do problem-solving, innovative problem-solving, necessarily they will be existing in a sort of creative, or random, or chaotic space, not all the time, but it's sort of the edge of that, which means that we can't control them either because they'll make mistakes, they will somehow, or whether it's by chance or some other mechanism, uh, will will make their own decisions, they will in fact be irrational, they will be chaotic in some sense. And so this idea that we could have this set of AIs that are like 100% rational and ingenious problem solvers, those two don't exist together.
2: Right, yeah.
1: And And so there's Really, when we're talking about the AI on the one hand, and and sort of this human instinct or unconscious on the other, they're sort of like two sides of the same coin that that you know are very different, but but they they feed off of each other.
0: Yeah, it's and, like the yeah. AI is a sort of uh, combination of our own unconscious and conscious mind, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. But,
0: um, I was speaking to a friend about this this, this topic. I, I, I posed the same question to him: If AI and the unconscious win a race, which one would win? And his first response was, uh, the unconscious, uh, "AI is unconscious itself." I thought, "Oh yes, of course, yeah, you're right, it is." But what if it does become conscious? And then this film we've been talking about for the for, for the listeners to the show, George Lucas's um, *Electronic Labyrinth* TH, THX 1138. For Eb, it's uh, his graduation film. I think he was at the University of Southern California, okay. and it's an amazing film about um, AI. It's 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 sort of um, depicts a world you know a few centuries ahead. They're living in a, a sort of underground arena, um, and it picks up on those points you've said. You know, like the gender seems to be dissected, and there's there's yeah, male and female there's almost fluid. Um, they're completely, um, completely sort of subservient to, to robots and, and haven't got a, an awareness themselves as human beings that they are being controlled by robots. So they are literally unconscious. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like that idea of AI being unconscious itself. But could it become conscious, right? Um, could AI at some point become conscious?
1: You know that that gets at the question of what is consciousness. Um, uh, any any person who, well, science person who tells you, "Oh, we know what it is," they don't know what it is. <laughs> um, that no nobody. I mean, it's a phenomenon. It's it's not an illusion. Even if it's quoted just a feeling, it's not an illusion. Um, but my my answer is this: When we look at a table or a dog or a person. Uh, that a lot of that is fuzzy space, you know, it, it's, it's atoms and it's molecules and atoms and then it's quantum particles. And when we dig down into that, we discover it's what's called the quantum chromodynamic level hmm. that even those quantum particles are like 99.999% energy. So really there's two things that we know. One is that we exist in a sea of energy, and a lot of that energy is organized in some way. It's mm. flowing. It's it's organized because there there's a table and there's a person and a dog and so on. Um, some of that energy is self-reflective. It has some kind of awareness, and while we don't know what consciousness is, it's going to be it's, it's some kind of self-aware quality of the energy. So, you and I, right now, are blobs of consciousness in the sea of energy,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, you know, then, uh, and, and if we ask, like, what, if we do some neuroscience poking and say, well, okay, that's very, ph- you know, n- metaphysical, uh, let's actually poke at the brain and see what happens. people go to sleep. I mean, all of us lose consciousness every single day, and we gain it. Yes, absolutely. We go to bed, right? And then we're gone for eight
0: hours.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and and people, uh, you know, when they go in the operating table, they get anesthetic, and anesthesiologists will tell you they don't know how anesthetics work, uh, which is remarkable. (laughs) Um, and, And what's so interesting is that when we look at brain damage, it appears to be that the seat of consciousness that, that experience of being awake, as opposed to being awake and behaving, just being awake in the sense of self-awareness seems to have its base in the brainstem, which suggests then that animals, and certainly mammals, also have consciousness, maybe not like ours, but dogs and cats and birds, and mm-hmm. they have consciousness too. Um, and, and again, it, it could be quite different experience, more limited experience, whatever it is, and, and so there is this consciousness out there. Could machines gain consciousness? You know, I, I think what we'll see first with machines is what I call social emotions. Uh, you know, it's... If I haven't seen you...